0: Hey there, and welcome to The Pseudo Show, brought to you by the Destination Linux Network. Today, we take some audience feedback and dive into some common mistakes sysadmins make, some of our favorite tips, and discuss how to stay informed. All that and more on this episode of The Pseudo Show. Welcome to The Pseudo Show, your home for all things enterprise open source. I'm Eric, the IT guy, and joining me every episode is a co-host equivalent to Master Yoda, Brandon Johnson. How are you doing today, buddy? Stupid your puns are. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, That for, for now on, that's how you have to introduce yourself. <laughs> no. <laughs> So our last few episodes have covered a range of operation-specific topics, from a journey into the world of cloud IT, security breaches, and building a home lab. These topics have raised a number of great discussions on our Matrix channel. In fact, if you aren't there, you definitely should go create an account and join us in pseudoshow-destinationlinux.network. Man, those those addresses just... Roll right off the tongue, don't they? (laughs) The full URL will be in the show notes. Uh, Anyway, Atypical Colonel, one of our community members, asked for tips and tricks Brandon and I used as systems administrators. Today, we decided to compile our list and share them with all of you.
1: In fact, our first tip goes hand-in-hand hand with our first sponsor. So it's important to have a solid password management strategy. Keeping complex passwords is a great way to keep unwanted actors out of your systems. And here at the Pseudo Show, we turned to Bitwarden.
0: That's right. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and business organizations to store, share, and sync sensitive data. Bitwarden is an open-source password management tool whose feature set rivals any other tool on the market today.
1: Our favorite password manager just keeps getting better. Recently, Bitwarden announced the availability of emergency access. If you have a premium, family, or enterprise plan, you can designate any other bitwarden user as an emergency contact this means that the the grantee will be able to request view only access or the ability to reset the master password of the account owner that granted that access
0: i don't know about you but um, their functionality peaked when they offered dark mode for their uh, for their browser plugin <laughs> <laughs> But you can get started for free by going to bitwarden.com slash DLN. Then when you see how amazing their tool is, you can get all those features for the low, low price of $10 per year. So head on over to bitwarden.com slash DLN today to let Bitwarden know you heard about them here first. And thank you to Bitwarden for sponsoring the pseudo show. We started the segment off talking about
1: passwords. So let's talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, let's talk about passwords. I mean, we we recently had an episode talking about SolarWinds hack Reading the articles, it you know, there was obviously a bit more complexity behind this, but for the most part, the problem was bad password hygiene. That was the basically the root of the attack, bad password hygiene. Password complexity is very important. Generating passwords that are not just hard for humans to guess, also passwords that are hard for machines to, to guess.
0: You know, to be honest, this isn't something that I worry all that much about uh, ever since I started using password manager years ago. It's just I mean, the only difference now is I went from eight characters up to 16 and I, I make sure to crank up the number of uh, numbers and symbols. And <laughs> of course, it's it's really hilarious when I hand my Bitwarden password over to my wife and she goes, really, you want me to type that in? like, no, just just, it's in the family account. Just go and copy it out of there and and paste it into the website, and it's all good. I don't have to care what my passwords are anymore.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And for the most part, I don't either. If a site allows it, I actually lean more towards passphrases because there's more characters. If I need to with a passphrase, I can actually remember a passphrase versus a long 20-character password phrases are generally harder for machines to guess. So that's uh, typically my suggestion, especially for wet like if I have like a web-facing SSH connection, mm-hmm. I uh, which I rarely do. I normally don't allow passwords for that, but if I needed to, it's a uh, would be a, a long complex pass phrase versus a password. But generally for my accounts, I like to go with passphrases. Yeah,
0: passphrases are a great idea. And arguably they're they're harder to crack, but they're easier to remember. You could take a song lyric or just a random sentence of gibberish and put it into a, a password manager. But that pattern, it would be easier to memorize and, and not have to rely on your password manager for everything. Mm-hmm. But here's yeah. here's something to think about. And this is something I haven't been good about un- <laughs> unless there's been a breach. Uh, is password rotation. Honestly, I haven't rotated any of my very secure passwords in a long time. How how about you?
1: I have a practice around this. If it is finance- Anything that has a credit card basically associated with it, banking, my Amazon account, or pretty much any yeah, basically anything with that that has my credit card associated with it, I rotate my passwords typically every six months. I know best practice is more like in security is more like three months. Six months is pretty good practice. And then other passwords, I I will rotate yearly, um, or if I see it on "You've been pwned," of course I use Bitwarden for, for that, and uh, I have a uh, reminders in uh, my calendar to go change certain passwords. Just pretty much if it's critical to my to my identity, I'm very vigilant when it comes to password. That's rotation. a great point, and. And from time to time, like my family's moved a few
0: times in the last couple of years. Uh, and when I go in to change credit card information or uh, change our billing or mailing address, a lot of times if I, if I think of it, I will try and, and rotate that password as well. Uh, not to keep bragging on our sponsor, but Bitwarden does have the Vault Health reports, which I found to be really helpful. Uh, it points out anytime you have duplicate passwords, points out any uh, websites in its database that have been hacked. And, and Brandon mentioned a good one that they will also link in the show notes. And it's, I think you've been pwned.com. It's, it's a community-sourced compilation of sites and and applications that have recently seen breaches. Uh, and it's it really brings uh, just kind of an independent look at at your account health, you can, you can go through and look at the recent list. And in fact, if I remember correctly, you can even put in your, your email address or common usernames that you use. And it can tell you if, if, uh, if that uh, account name has shown up in, in any, uh, any information that has been dumped out to the internet.
1: This service uh, I also use, it gets it from, from that same source is uh, Firefox monitor. Oh yeah. I use yeah. Firefox. Yeah, Firefox is my default browser, and it's and it's right there built into Firefox. So I I use Firefox Monitor to keep track of uh, if there's any compromised accounts. Uh, I use uh, Firefox Monitor. Also on top of that, you know, we're also here to talk about how we handled this as a system administrator. Now, a lot of the tools uh, that we have today are actually fairly recent, like Vault. I didn't have so like getting like a an SSH password or something. It was in, in some cases. It was in an Excel spreadsheet.
0: Yeah, I've <laughs> I've been in organizations where that is definitely the truth. Or or even better yet, a, a, a just plain text file on some department share. That was fun. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. And today I would use Hashicorp Vault. Uh, that would be my uh, default way of handling secrets, whether that's SSH passwords. Uh, database passwords, whatever it is. But a tool that's been around for a very long time uses uh, GPG encryption uh, to encrypt your passwords. And I used this at previous uh, organizations. It's a utility called Pass. Uh, and uh, it's a command line utility. And you can uh, co- put uh, passwords right into the clipboard or pass them into uh, other commands. Pass is was awesome. I was using it for quite some time when I first went back to Linux as my full-time desktop for password management, and then I I realized fairly quickly that Pass would not work for my wife, so that's when <laughs> when I discovered uh, Bitwarden. Things like uh, Pass, you know, great for system administrators, Vault, great for system administrators and application
0: development as well as CI/CD pipelines.
1: In exactly. fact,
0: I use Ansible to deploy most of my SSH keys to to new systems that I'm building, and most of those uh, SSH keys or uh, config files are are uh, encrypted with Ansible Vault.
1: Yeah, that, that's a uh, very smart, a- and that's it. So Vault, whether it's Hashicorp Vault, Ansible Vault, probably some of the best ways of handling secrets for automation uh, for development. Use cases, pass. I think is one of the best tools for any Linux administrator uh, out there. And Eric, like as a Linux system administrator, how often did you log in as root? <laughs> Actually, not, <laughs> not very often.
0: Not very often. In fact, that was that was one battle that uh, that I didn't have to fight as often as you might think. Uh, most of the organizations that I worked for. Had a firm belief in not running any commands as root. And if you did, to at least log in as yourself and then sudo over to root first. Typically, the root password was some, you know, sixty-four character long password that was stored in an isolated key pass file somewhere, you know, on a flash drive or something. But for the most part, the uh, the root password was not available to the typical uh, systems administrator, much less uh, much less DBAs or, or developers. It was handled with a combination of SSH keys and sudoers access.
1: In terms of centralized sudoers management, there's uh, quite a few proprietary tools out there to handle this like that w- integrate with Active Directory. But I've been asked recently by customers, by just a fellow members in the community, how would I handle this today? I haven't been a system administrator for quite some time, but when I was a system administrator, I wish there was a tool like FreeIPA mm. uh, out there. I love free IPA. It's probably one of my favorite identity tools out there. If you're not familiar with it, it's a uh, stands for, uh, so it's free IPA free identity policy and audit. So in terms of identity, it uses a. Uh, uh, open source project called 389 Directory Server, which is part of Fedora, and then uh, and Kerberos as well, so you can have a single sign-on things like that. And then also is policy. It's actually missing the audit part right now. That that's actually getting <laughs> fixed. But from uh, in terms of policy, you can set policies at the system level and you can manage centrally manage sudo so if you want use you can have like typical god right sudo that you can run whatever command you want through sudo or you can uh, really limit the commands that someone can run through the utility and the best part about it versus proprietary tools it uses standard linux commands and, and processes. So you don't need to worry about installing some third party utility that you can't look at the source for if you, if that, if that's something you care about. And free IPA is probably my, yeah, it's still my favorite open source project. Uh, like in the top, at least top five, it integrates with your existing corporate directory services. Uh, typically that's active directory through active directory trusts. And if you don't have. Uh, and it, like if you're starting from from scratch, it's a great pl- great way to get started with a directory. So service.
0: we're we're on a good clip here. Why, why don't we uh, continue down the server management front, and we'll, we'll talk about <laughs> when I was a systems administrator, it, it became kind of a running joke that uh, every time I joined a new company, either as a contractor or uh, even even some of the full time jobs that I worked, I always ended up becoming the patching guy. I was always the one who got stuck organizing a patching process. And then it seems like once you get a label, you can never get rid of it. So (laughs) for multiple jobs, it was my job to make sure our servers were patched. There's so many different ways to divide this up. There's different beliefs on different schedules. But for me, what I found worked best is a quarterly patch cycle. And uh, that means that in the first month of a quarter, the dev environment would get, would get patched. It just, Pull down all the patches to a central repository, whether that was Red Hat Satellite or Spacewalk, or, or nowadays it's it's Foreman. So you pull down all your packages and basically create a snapshot of a directory. Two, you you're looking at uh, at QA, at test, at maybe even your your staging environment. And then the third month of the quarter, you're looking at production DR, any anything else that is customer facing. Arguably that, that gives that gives you about 60 days or, or, or a little bit more to v- validate that all of your applications, all of your automation isn't broken by anything that's that's done in a patch. And you do that four times a year. But as a systems administrator, the quarterly patch cycle seems to have been the one that didn't uh, interfere as much with with the business operations.
1: Building patching life cycles has gotten so much easier over the last few years. Spacewalk, uh, which was uh, the upstream project for Red Hat Satellite Five, quite frankly, was terrible because <laughs> <laughs> uh, you had to cl- clone the repo, make, make a you know do do all kinds of incantations to that made sense in a in your head, forming coupled with Catello, which is the uh, upstream for Red Hat Satellite 6 and soon to be 7, makes that lifecycle management of, of patching so much easier. So you make a content view and you go, okay, this content view is for this quarter. And if you're using your example for quarterly patching, this is for this quarter's patching, mm-hmm. Q1 of 2020. And you just promote it through... The cycle. Okay, I promoted it to, to dev from the library. Promote it then to test QA, and promote it to prod. And what's cool about it is then you can automate the patching. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, make it you know schedule it to as soon like as soon as uh, it gets promoted through it, it it goes and applies patch on a schedule during you know during your uh, maintenance definitely windows.
0: and. And to kind of build on that, that, that works great for your legacy environments, systems that you're still kind of treating like like pets versus cattle, whereas in kind of the cattle mentality, patching is even easier because it's, your, your patches are put into into your servers at the template level. Every time, whether you do it on a, on a weekly basis or a monthly basis, you go in, you you boot up your template servers, you run your patches, you run your your Ansible scripts or or your your Terraform or, or whatever against your templates, and then everything else that you built is pulled from those templates. So your your patching is kind of built in, and, and then it's even less of an issue if you're if you're doing some kind of infrastructure on-demand type of a setup. All the patches are already there when the system's built. It's always built against the latest golden image. It just makes patching so much easier. No more late nights staying up until four in the morning trying to patch things on a Saturday night when you're half asleep.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, update container images, update your virtual images. So much easier because you can just upload the new image, upload the new version to OpenStack or, or uh, to Amazon and, and you're done. And you have your latest build of of your OS. So that works
0: great in a normal day to day situation. But I mean, even just recently, we had we had the pseudo bug come out. What would you recommend for systems administrators to to do in those situations where a massive vulnerability has been announced, patches have been released to the upstream repositories? Now we got to get it into the business systems.
1: Actually, it's just an accelerated version of what I was describing with Foreman Catello, and that's uh, just promoting it faster. You create a new content view that has the uh, that patch, and you just promote it through. Go promote it, test it, promote it, test it, promote it to prod, and schedule its rollout. And obviously, during your Typical maintenance windows. Now that's with uh, traditional. Now, with today, with uh, more cloud native style uh, deployments, it's typically you update your temp, your virtual machine templates or, or your container image and you redeploy. And it's as simple as that today. But if you're still maintaining more traditional systems, which aren't going away anytime soon, I'll probably retire and there still be <laughs> people not doing cloud i'm native. pretty sure
0: i'll retire before some of the uh ubuntu 12.4 servers that i've managed will go out of service
1: <laughs> i hope they're gone <laughs> but, hey the the last uh, company
0: i worked for is a sysadmin still had ubuntu 1204 servers and or CentOS 4 i mean we had all kinds of legacy <laughs> it was bad
1: <laughs> hey i i have a customer that's uh That has a hardware in production uh, that went end of life in 2005. So, (laughs) uh, yeah, Oracle 9i. That's that's, (laughs) so had flashbacks on that one. (laughs) Stuff that's impossible to patch. Yeah, (laughs) definitely (laughs) in an isolated zone, I hope so. Part of patching comes compliance. I've worked in healthcare. I'm working with uh, telecommunications these days. Compliance is huge. Specifically, I'm not talking like license compliance. I'm talking security compliance.
0: I think that's the one thing that people hate more than they hate patching.
1: (laughs) (laughs) When I was in healthcare, we did a utilized... Actually, it was pretty early for this project... When I was leaving, and that was OpenSCAP. Uh, the OpenSCAP project has some fantastic utilities. It's all integrated now into Foreman and and Catello. But there's some pre built policies around PCI and also some government uh, policies as well. But what's really cool is you can build your own. So if you have a pol- if you need to build a policy to secure a system, you can download the OpenSCAP workbench. And build your policy, and then go apply it to your systems. And then it's a lot like Ansible in that way. Like you, it actually can use Ansible. You can use uh, use uh, SCAP to just go secure fleet of systems. You go, oh, all of these need to be PCI compliant. There's a standard profile. Go, boom. Uh, and if uh, you need to tweak it for your auditor, you tweak it and go apply it everywhere. Same with like uh, HIPAA compliance, like you can build profiles in SCAP that meet those requirements. And what's great is a lot of the profiles that were built for government or even for PCI are get you 90% there for, for, for your requirement, if not more. So it, it's something that is always at the front of my mind it is compliance because it, with my career growing up in healthcare – always thinking about can someone get access to the system through some silly means and get uh, access to patient data. That was always at the top of my mind because I was dealing with healthcare claims and all that and I had to make sure your systems were fully compliant to, to the HIPAA so standard. So I've worked uh,
0: for theater chains, for hardware distributors. Um, so I've I've had a lot of experience with PCI. Unfortunately, neither of those environments talked about OpenSCAP or, or even just the SCAP um, protocol. Th- this is something I actually didn't spend much time with until I came to Red Hat, so maybe for for our listeners who who are familiar with HIPAA or or PCI, uh, who aren't familiar with SCAP, maybe just in, in a quick couple of sentences, why don't you tell folks what those policies do? Do they do they make changes to the to individual servers? Maybe kind of walk folks through that.
1: Yeah, so it actually makes uh, core configuration changes, and sometimes it's just a check. So, like for example, in the PCI. What's the account access and access control look like? What's the, uh, the logging look like? It, and all even down to what partition is VAR log on? Like th- that could be one of the requirements. A uh, big one is like, pap- what's the password quality with PAM or just the general system authentication? And it will make those changes. We'll say, here's a remediation script or Ansible playbook to remediate that. And you can not just have a profile that then applies the remediation, you can see at a glance what the profile will change, what it's recommending to change, and how far you are out of compliance. That's what SCAP does. That's what SCAP helps you do. It helps you st- understand where you are with uh, your systems from a compliance
0: standpoint. So when I came across the OpenSCAP project and and started learning about some of the capabilities and some of the profiles that are being built out there, I was really excited because I'm sure a lot of you listening can relate to what I'm about to say. Our version of compliance was once a year, once every six months, some third-party auditor would come in, would run this black box scan they just tell us to run the script on all of our servers as root which always made my hair stand up but you know they were supposedly certified and licensed to to tell me to do that and then what we get back is this 3000 line spreadsheet with multiple different pages telling us everything that was wrong with our systems there's no rhyme or reason to how it was laid out it was just page after page after page of excel spreadsheet telling us all these things that we needed to fix so having, having a framework like OpenScap, where you can just say, hey, this is, this is a credit card uh, front-end machine, so it needs to be PCI compliant, set this profile on the box, it will configure itself the way it needs to be, it'll give you the remediation scripts that you need to bring your system within compliance, and then to be able to manage it from a central location, amazing. I was excited when I came across the OpenSCAP project so much so that I, I think Brandon and I are going to have an episode on it probably a little bit later in the year, but it's really something that is changing how systems administrators do their jobs and helping to protect customer data and, and private uh, personally identifiable information as well. Hey, hey Brandon, how's your, uh, how's your CIDR notation? And, and do you have your subnet <laughs> calculator ready? Cause one of the things that drives me crazy as a systems administrator is IP address management. <laughs>
1: Yeah, IP address management, you know, the thing is though it's it's like it's the easiest thing to handle, quite frankly. And I'm gonna say it is the easiest thing to, to implement uh in an organization. So it's
0: also one of the easiest things to
1: break. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That could, that that's that can be kind of true. But IP address management uh at every organization I've worked worked for was an Excel spreadsheet. Same. And it's like why? And there are some fantastic, I've worked with many proprietary IP address management tools, uh, building integrations for uh, cloud forms and and other products. IP address management, open source tools have come a long way. One of the first ones I've came across was PHP IPAM. I'll give you one guess which language Pearl. it's written in. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go with that. Starts with a P, Eric. But that was close. <laughs> but what's really cool about PHP IPAM is it will actually discover what IP addresses are already in use on your network. You give it a range, and it will go go. Uh, go okay, this is in use. This is in use, and then automatically allocate those machines. And then you just need to go update it appropriately. One that I've come across, I came across a couple of years ago, and I implemented it in my home lab, and I use it to manage the IP addresses in my home lab uh, across all the VLANs that I have. Uh, Open source project by DigitalOcean called NetBox. I really like NetBox. NetBox doesn't just do IP address management. Actually, this is a tool that if you just manage multiple racks of servers, like in data center closets, you can build a map of what servers are in the rack. And you just say, okay, and at this point in the rack, it's a, a top of rack switch below that is for, you know, for you server that's connected to this port. It, th- that's a lot of manual updates, obviously, but it's a great way of immediately knowing where things are. And it's a, great way of handling documentation, whether if you're running an IT shop for a large corporation or you're managing, like I said, managing multiple IT closets for small businesses, that should be your documentation. Some people, their documentation was the photo of the last time (laughs) they went to that (laughs) rack. This is a better way of doing it. Because you update it in the system and it's not a picture. It's actually data that you update. Like in its phone friendly. So if you're in, you know, in the data center, you can go, oh, this is oh, that's where that is. Okay, cool. You can go look at the rack on your phone and know, make sure to get it at pull the cable from port 32, not from port 23. (laughs) You know, it's a good way of of documenting your entire data. You mean
0: I don't have to fire up angry IP scan on my, uh, on my desktop and
1: (laughs) and update my Excel spreadsheet anymore? This is awesome. Uh, Netbox is one of the most fully featured solutions out there. Like it doesn't do like some of the more proprietary solutions come with DNS, which is fantastic, because then you mm-hmm. can uh, check out an IP address and also update DNS. Yeah, you have to integrate with some other DNS solution with NetBox, but a lot of our audiences probably probably prefers Bind anyway. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, now that my mind has been blown that I don't have to maintain all these Excel spreadsheets anymore, <laughs> we've been trying to kind of straddle the, the line between legacy data center operations like Brandon and I came up in in the industry uh managing and the kind of the newer cloud native approach to to managing infrastructure what this culture shift has done is it's, it's created a new maybe a subclass if you will of systems administrator people that are more developer centered they're developers by by trade or they're security engineers um, who don't spend all day every day running pseudo commands and now they've suddenly been asked to provision their their own development environment, whether that's on their laptop or whether that's on some kind of essentially centrally managed server. They have to set up their own Linux environment. And instead of, instead of getting down deep into the techno kung fu that can be the bash shell, instead, one of my favorite tools, and, and even as a veteran systems administrator, I find myself using more and more is Cockpit. When it comes to container management, virtual machine management, even disk layouts. I'm a very visual person. And so now when I'm managing disk partitions, I love using Cockpit. And for those that haven't heard of this, oh my gosh, go install Fedora, start up Cockpit, because it is amazing. It is tying in all these command line utilities into a web UI. There's dashboards, there's, like I said, disk management. Virtual machine management is is off the hook. Uh, my my
1: home server lab, I, I manage
0: all of my servers through Cockpit. It's amazing.
1: Yeah, Cockpit virtual machine management is quickly becoming feature parity, and in many ways, it's already better than mm-hmm. Vert Manager from a GUI perspective. Like, there's still some obvious features that are not in Cockpit yet for virtual machine management, but. Starting VM, creating VM, taking snapshots—that that just came in a recent version of Cockpit. Adding networks, doing the the vast majority of use cases, like adding devices, like special devices, is not yet there, but it is definitely one of my favorite ways of managing virtual machines. Actually, one of the things that I, when Cockpit first came out, I a- actually was kind of off by am I? Hey, these uh, admin tool, web admin, because web admin tools for Linux traditionally have been. Sc- I'm trying to come up with a, with a nice word that describes how terrible here. they are. But, <laughs> and also other utilities that kind of do what Cockpit does. Like in the early days of, of Yast, the tool in SUSE, yeah, you know, it's not a web utility, but it was a utility that kind of was trying to accomplish the same goal: make it easier for for administrators to manage SUSE. And, and
0: who didn't love a good TUI to to try and you know set up users? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, Yast, for all in all, worked pretty well, but it had a a couple of drawbacks. And th- this is this is very old data. This is like. Uh, SUSE circa 2006, 2007 timeframe. If uh, you made a configuration change, say, to your network or to your host file outside of Yast, it would blow away your configuration. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that if I recommend to my customers to utilize cockpit to uh, uh, admins that are may not be senior Linux administrators... Is it going to impact that? One of the things that's really cool about Cockpit is the way it manages state. If you change it from the CLI or you change it in Cockpit, it's utilizing the same data. So if it's if it's pulling from a configuration file, it's pulling from the same configuration file. It's not pulling it from some database. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one of the things I really, really love about Cockpit. This week's episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. You can get started today with a $100 free credit by going to co/dln and creating Ocean an account. DigitalOcean is
0: helping you get your apps to market faster with their app platform. Here, you can build, deploy, and scale apps quickly by utilizing their simple, fully managed solution. Let DigitalOcean handle the infrastructure, app runtimes, dependencies, so you can focus on getting from code to production in just a few clicks.
1: The app platform starts at just $5 a month and has support for Node.js, Python, PHP, Ruby, Hugo, and many more. Get started today by going to do.co slash dln to get your $100 free credit. The promo is good for two months and will let you play with all kinds of ready to deploy apps right from the DigitalOcean marketplace. That's do.co slash DLN. And thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of the pseudo so we, show.
0: We, we spent a lot of time talking about different tools and and different procedures to follow. Um, there, there's another element to this that I wanted to touch on, and that's Staying informed, uh, and not just from an educational standpoint, but from a day-to-day perspective. Case in point, everyone that listens to the show knows that I love Todoist. It, I live and breathe through my Todoist. They they had an outage uh, beginning of February, I think it was, and it went on for three or four hours. And so when I was trying to make changes on on my phone and then go and, and look at those changes on, on the web console, it, it wasn't syncing. And so, of course, it it had to have been, you know, my Wi-Fi. So you take the phone off Wi-Fi and and you try and sync again and it it still doesn't work. Then you start getting timeout errors and then you're like, okay, well, maybe it's not my network. So go figure. I'm not sure when this started, but one of one of the best places I have (laughs) found to look up outages or performance degradations on on an application that I use is go check Twitter. (laughs) When did that become a thing? But I, sure enough, I went out to Twitter, and I went to Todoist's uh, handle, and sure enough, there was a thread that was forming around this this uh, service outage. So I literally found out that my application was having trouble through Twitter. I, I don't know if you've had any similar experiences, Brandon, but I'm, I'm sure there's a few uh, better, more, more informed places to get, get your news from.
1: That actually uh, it was the early days of Twitter, but that's how I found out about an AWS outage. It, I think it was in 2011. <laughs> so <laughs> I seem to I remember that. from one. Amazon, and I and I was a customer. Yeah, that was that was a lot of fun.
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, nowadays we know that uh, there's an AWS outage because half the internet becomes una- unavailable.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, staying up to date on technology, you know, can be a full time job in itself. I mean, Eric writes for Frontpage Linux. We talk about some fun stuff over there. I've made a few, a couple of uh, videos, you know, one about Overt, one about Mist.io. Following stuff like that is important. Ars Technica is probably my go to for technology news for in the general media and keeping up to date with everyone's doing in the industry. Ars Technica has done a very good job cataloging whenever there's a major IT conference. So uh, Ars Technica has definitely been one of my good Yeah, Ars Technica
0: is actually where I first heard about the uh, SolarWinds
1: hack. I think that might have been ours for me as well. A lot of technology, uh, I've just stumbled across some random article that someone posts on on the fedora magazine page So
0: news aggregators are a great place to go and get current get current news to find tutorials that are that are short and to the point to learn a new application or a new uh, a new way to configure uh, something that you've done for years Uh, and it's it's definitely a good place to find out about major vulnerabilities I mean with with the media cycle it's just by the time a vulnerability is reported there's usually a half a page article written somewhere about it Um, and sometimes that's quicker and more to the point than than some of these long CVE articles. So go out, look at some of these sites and make them part of your daily routine. If you can have processes like patching and compliance in place, then it's not going to be a major deal when, when the next vulnerability comes out or when the next version of one of your key uh, applications is is released. It just it makes life so much easier. In this segment of the Productivity Corner, we wanted to follow up on a topic that we talked about not too long ago. We talked about 30, 60, 90 and how that helps you plan long term. Brandon, you mentioned during that episode something that we wanted to revisit. We've mentioned this in passing a few times, but never really dove in real deep. So you and I both use GTD or getting things done to keep our productivity level full. up. why don't you share with folks what GTD is and how you
1: use it? Getting started with uh, GTD is actually pretty simple. It's five steps. So the first part is capture what you have. Basically take everything and put it in a box. So like if you're talking like physical files and papers, just take everything, put it in a box, and go through it, know know what it is. The The whole premise is if it's five minutes or less, act on it immediately. When you go through and organize it, so let's take your email inbox for example as you go through it if it's fi- if it takes you 5 minutes or less to act on that action do it right there and then and then archive it just get it out of your inbox so that's part, you know kind of goes to the capture clarify and organize and and part of this is also reviewing your inbox. Go make sure, okay, did I capture everything? Did I capture everything? It's going through the whole cycle over and over and over again. Capture, clarify, organize, review, and engage. All five of those steps can take in that five-minute span, or or maybe it just needs to be longer. I, like I've used GTD to plan out whole projects uh, because it, it is that useful. If you actually really think about it, the five steps in GTD sound a lot like scrum in many ways. And because it's all about capturing the requirements, uh, clarifying it, organizing it, review and actually doing the the
0: nice thing is, especially with that, with that five minute counter, you can go in, you can get all this little stuff off your plate, out of your, out of your head. And and that frees you up to focus on bigger and, and better tasks. And what I found is GTD can really work well for me when I I go through kind of my routine and check all my notifications and, and, throw everything and it, it may not be a physical file box anymore, but kind of in a mental box, um, just throw it throw it all together, see what I have to do, knock out the easiest things first. And then especially with longer projects, in fact, I've actually been able to publish blog posts lately with some frequency because I broke down a blog post into its smaller steps, break those down into bite-sized chunks of, well, instead of just looking at a blank doc in Joplin and going, okay, I'm going to write a blog post. Cool. And then you sit there for 20 minutes and go, okay, that was a great waste of time. On to the next task. Instead, you say, okay, I'm going to research topic ideas. I want to I to take take some time to, to brainstorm those ideas. I'm going to write an outline. I want to write a draft. And then I'm going to edit, uh, peer review, and then format and publish. I mean, you, you can break those things down even further. Maybe today I just want to write the introduction. However you want to slice and dice that work, you, you can put it together in in some type of a format that speaks to you that you can really understand what kind of work you have to do and but you can just it gives you a high level view and a a view down in the trenches i know my favorite tool is todoist hands down i it, it is my brain dump it's it's where my emails go it's it's where all my projects live all my tasks bills that for some reason, I can't pay automatically. Everything's in there, and at the time of this recording, this is how much I brain dump into Todoist. At this time, I have a, I have two hundred and thirty two open tasks in my Todoist.
1: <laughs> Eric, I am pretty sure that you are a paid sponsor of Todoist.
0: They, they really should. <laughs> okay, so if anybody from Todoist is listening, I I, I at least want a T shirt or something here. But it it really is an amazing tool. Because I've been able to capture projects and ideas and dump them into a project into Todoist. And I actually get around to it at some point because I go through it. I, I use our 30, 60, 90 plan and I, I figure out what I want to get done that quarter. And by capturing these projects or these ideas, uh, especially when it comes to creating content, I don't remember how many uh, different uh, tasks I have for sudo pseudo show or for blog posts. Just hey, that would make a great blog post. I want to put that as a as a task in Todoist, and eventually, when I go through and plan, I'll come back. I'll see that idea. I'll remember what I wanted to talk about, and I can get it scheduled. But I I will admit that Todoist probably isn't the only tool.
1: So there there, there are plenty, and and the ones I like are open source. Unlike Todoist. I know. Granted, everything I'll I'll mention that implements GTD pretty well, can integrate with Todoist, except for uh, one of them. The first one that actually integrates with Todoist is uh, Planner. Uh, It's an elementary OS uh, application. It's a beautiful app. Integrates with Todoist, or you can just use its own local database. It's a great application. In my defense, the
0: next major release of Planner, I think pretty much brings it feature parity with the the web interface for todoist and ironically i have a task in todoist to go and check out planner here in here in a month or so <laughs>
1: So the other one, I kind of split my time between these two apps, and I'm actually planning on migrating to just one. So I started utilizing the development version of GNOME To Do, which is uh, based on GTK four, and it has a work a very nice GTD workflow. It's very similar to the GTD workflow that you can get out of Apple Tasks or Apple Reminders. I really like the uh, the workflow that, that is in the new uh, to-do. But one that I really like, and it, it's a project that was resurrected from the dead. I mentioned this a few, uh, several episodes ago, and that was an application called Getting Things Gnome. Getting Things Gnome is a pure GTD workflow it, in its purest form. It is a GTD workflow. I mean, it's obviously not endorsed by GTD or anything like that, but it takes that workflow and really uh, makes it work. I haven't decided which one I'm going to finally land on. But right now, almost everything ends up in GNOME To-Do simply because uh, the evolution integration. So I just right-click on an email, say create a task, and it doesn't go into GTG. It goes into GNOME To-Do. Getting Things GNOME—it's a great application. They're working on sync services. They're working on integration with other applications like mm-hmm. uh, uh, time trackers and stuff like that. So, Getting Things GNOME is a real—I think—is a really good application still. And if you can contribute to it, I suggest people do. I mean, it's a project that was. Declared dead and then resurrected. I'm very glad that. And it's it doesn't back. have
0: to be a piece of software. I mean, you, you go to Scrum planning sessions, and their tool of choice is a marker board. And if you really want to get specific, it's a marker board with multicolored Post-it notes. So it doesn't have to be some high tech cross platform tool to to track all of this. It it could be something as simple as a marker board and some sticky notes.
1: The prefer the preferred. Uh... Tracking methodology with gtd is a piece in of fact paper. there's a
0: lot to be said for going with a low tech option especially when it comes to planning your productivity because when you tie everything into uh, a mobile device there's so many distractions it would be so easy to go in and get on Twitter God forbid you start watching cat videos on YouTube and then you forgot what that brilliant project you wanted to start was sometimes the low tech option is is the right option
1: a- absolutely and People think I'm nuts, but I still have a paper planner. It's simply because sometimes paper is better, but that's more, and it's more for my long-term stuff, not for like short-term stuff is on, is always on the computer because it's always in front of me, but long-term tasks, long-term projects, it's easier for me to reference in a traditional planner. I
0: don't have a planner anymore, but right here on my desk, uh, I, I know our <laughs> it's an audio podcast and I just held up my, my planner for, for all to see. But picture, if you will, a, a small um, small journal. Um, I love these because they're small. They can sit on my nightstand. I, I have multiples of them all over the house, uh, in my office, in the living room, in our bedroom. And, and they just, all of them have a pen uh, hooked to them. And I just pull out the pen, and if I if I have a sudden idea of something that I need to do or something that I something that I want to think about, it's I, I use my paper journal as almost um, as almost just a dumping place or or a scratch pad for ideas. Or if there's something really really bugging me, I can write it down, and usually that's enough to kind of clear my head. I, I've written half of a half of blog posts before in my paper journal, just because I, I I hit an idea, it created a spark and I just started writing. And the nice thing is you can take that, you can take that paper and you can set it next to your keyboard. That can be part of your revision processes. I just brain dumped this blog onto into this paper journal. Now that I'm ready to type it, now that I'm ready to make it ready for consumption, I've already got a draft done. I just have to type up what's good and and change what's, what's not as good. And there you go. I'm done.
1: So, Eric, you introduced me to Inbox Zero, and I'm slowly getting there. As of this uh, recording, I'm at 115 emails in my inbox. How do you tie how you implement GTD with Inbox Zero? So
0: Inbox Zero for me is part of that capture step of, of GTD. For me, that's going through my calendar, that's going through my email inboxes. And then the tasks that I have, and that that's kind of how I start my, my day is in that capture phase of going through emails. If it's, if it's just a quick response or if it's just kind of an FYI type email, it gets archived. But if it's something that spawns a project or if it, if it requires some investigation, then, then that in that email becomes a task. And, And like, um, like evolution, I can e- I can forward emails to a Todoist email account, and it shows up in my Todoist uh, inbox. So I can sort it, I can assign it to a project, so I can give it a priority level. So inbox zero ties into the planning phase of GTD for me. And then if you think about it, all these different philosophies that we've talked about in the productivity corner really tie in together because Inbox Zero builds onto GTD and GTD builds into 30, 60, 90. I don't know, Brandon, maybe we should write a framework and publish a book and retire young.
1: <laughs> oh, I'd love to do that.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. Like today's episode, much of our content comes right from you, our listeners. To be part of that conversation, you should head over to our Matrix room, sudo show at destinationlinux.network. There's almost 200 of us chatting and sharing stories and ideas. It's a great place to hang out and connect with fellow technologists. If you'd like more of Brandon and I, you can find it over at sudo.show and on social media at sudo show podcast. You can catch more awesome content over at our network partners, destinationlinux.network.
1: Brandon, anywhere else you'd like to send folks? You can follow me on Twitter at dbrannonjohnson or my website at open-tech.net. And you can follow me at itguyeric or on
0: itguyeric.com. Remember, the pseudo show is your place for all things enterprise open source. Until next time.